Hi, everybody. Welcome to Packers Unscripted from Packers.com. I am Mike Spofford, joined by my trusted colleague, Wes Hodkowitz. We're coming to you here from our studios at Lambeau Field. Wes, it's Friday, our final show of the week, and that means we talk about keys to victory for the Green Bay Packers. They will play the Washington Redskins on Sunday at Lambeau Field, a noon central time kickoff. I think you and I are both headed in the same direction with where we're starting this conversation, so go. It's going to be, spoiler alert, shocker, hold on to your seats. The run game yeah. will decide the, the victor in this matchup. Okay, yep. but it does go both ways, right? Bill Callahan, uh, you know, and you heard Mike Pettin discuss it on Thursday evening. Matt LaFleur touched on it. He wants to run the football. That's the way it tried and true from the very beginning. That's his philosophy, and it's the reason why he was ultimately picked as the interim head coach here. He had the experience, and this is honestly what has allowed Washington to have the most success they've had all season Mm -hmm. as of late. And they have two really good backs. Now, we got to see exactly what's going on with Adrian Peterson and this toe injury. Yeah, he popped up on the injury report. Yeah, he didn't practice on Thursday. Was a full participant, presumably, on Wednesday. So we got to see where that's at. But Darius Geis to get him back, and that was one of the questions I asked Callahan on Wednesday, how important that was for this offense. Because this is a guy from the very beginning, as I said, going back to last year, before the knee injury, before some of the things that he's had to overcome, he was considered one of the top prospects in that draft class. Absolutely. And a guy that Washington was really excited about to build their backfield around. There was a reason why, for a number of years, people weren't really sure what Adrian Peterson's role was going to be because Geis was presumably the bell cow, the number one back. Well, now they found and fell into a spot where they were using both of them last week, and I felt like that gave them their truest identity. So what does that mean for the Packers? That means you have to stop them, whether it's Geis, whether it's Peterson, or a combination of both. That is where this all begins for the Packers' defensive front. Kenny Clark, Dean Lowry, Blake Martinez, all of those guys working together in tandem because on paper – yeah, it's been an up-and-down season for the Packers against the run. Yeah. They have to make a statement in this game because last week, Mike, I felt like for the most part they did just that against a really dangerous Saquon Barkley. Yeah, I thought the Packers did all right against Barkley. I mean, did they completely shut him down? No, but the no way the, the, the conditions in that game, the way the Giants certainly wanted to get that running game going, the fact that Barkley had only 4.4 yards per carry, didn't have any of those back-breaking type of runs, that was a pretty solid performance against a really good running back. My question for you with regard to this one now, when, <laughs> as Matt LaFleur, I believe he said it earlier this week, the Redskins are going to come off the bus wanting to run the ball. Yeah. They, are, they are going to try to pound the Packers with the run in this game on Sunday. With Geis and Peterson, schematically, how much of the true 3-4 base defense do you think we'll see? And by that I mean three down linemen, two outside linebackers, you know, a full five-man yeah. defensive front. How much do you think Mike Pettin goes to that uh, schematically here against this one-two punch of Washington? It depends on the first quarter goes. Okay. Because they do actually have a, a modification, a, a variant of that base where they can use Ibrahim Campbell. I almost said Isaiah. Ibrahim Campbell as that other linebacker, too. We saw it two weeks ago uh, against San Francisco. That's how they started the game against a run-heavy team. Campbell as the linebacker, but yet still a five-man front. So I think a lot of it's going to be, okay, not only how you're defending the run, but how are you matching up with Terry McLaurin? How are you able to you know eliminate some of the threats that are there? I mean, there's a real possibility, Mike, depending on how this injury report shakes out for Washington. They could start 
three rookie receivers in this football game. That's a real possibility. Yeah. They're down yeah. their top two tight ends due to concussions. Those perimeter weapons need to be held in check, and I think that is going to be the tried-and-true test of how they can defend this team because in a traditional sense, this appears like a base 3-4 from the first quarter to the fourth, but if McLaurin is being able to, to hit some explosive, if the safeties aren't able to you know, contain that, well, then that's when you have to start shifting to your sub packages. So I really think that first 15 minutes and how you stack up against it, I thought one of the real understated parts of that game against the Giants was, yeah, they, they weren't able to run in the first quarter. They did hold Barkley back, and, and that's what allowed them to win some of those three and outs early on. Mm-hmm. You need to be able to do that against Washington because, as I mentioned in a Final Thoughts video we shot moments ago in one of our <laughs> other mediums. We just got our stocking caps taken off, came yes, in from outside. Came back inside. Yeah. If they are able to run the ball, that is the number one best friend of Dwayne Haskins right now. Yeah, That's going to be what he's going to need. Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about it all week long, that the Packers defensively, you've got to put this game in the rookie quarterback's hands. You've got to make sure he doesn't have that best friend that he can rely upon. Now with Haskins... I'll give him credit. He's he's had four starts. He's essentially played five games because one of the games that he didn't start, he played a good chunk of it. So in essence, five games. He's taken care of the football okay, certainly compared to Daniel Jones and, and even Kyle Allen to a certain extent. Yeah. He only has, I believe it's a half dozen interceptions, only one lost fumble. So he hasn't been this turnover machine as a rookie quarterback. But in those five games, essentially five games he's played, he's been sacked 22 times. On 133 dropbacks. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible. So defensively, that's... The, the Packers would love to be able to get after the rookie quarterback and make things difficult for him, but to get to that point, you can't let Peterson and Geis get going. You have to shift the responsibility to the quarterback for Washington to be able to move the ball, while Washington's goal is going to be the other way. They're going to be trying to limit the responsibility on the rookie quarterback for the offense's success. Former Packers defensive line coach Mike Turgovac had said something to me. I remember it was in 2013 or 12, like maybe my first year even on the beat. And it was, you know, we make so much out of man versus zone coverage and all these things that we just kind of, you know, we always rattle them off. And it's just part of the lexicon when it comes to football. One of the things very few people talk about is in the defensive front, whether or not your defensive lineman can jet rush and what the risk and reward is of jet rushing with your defensive lineman. Because if you send a guy like Kenny Clark who has that capability, that can potentially expose you other places. That's why it's so critical to stop the run here because if you can, that allows Mike Pettin and Jerry Montgomery, that allows them to open up the playbook a little bit. Because if you look at the games where Haskins has succeeded, it's because he gets the time to scan the field. As a rookie quarterback, he needs that extra millisecond to be able to process everything that's going on. If you get pressure coming from the outside and you collapse the pocket up front, that's when the internal clock starts to speed up, and that's when guys start to make mistakes. Right, exactly. That is what I think is critical. Because as much as people are going to just say, well, it's Preston Smith versus old team, and Zedarius Smith has 28 quarterback uh, hits, and those are the two, one, two primary options. No, I mean, as some of the things you and I have discussed this week, and you've articulated yourself, it's a lot on Dean Lowry and Kenny Clark and that defensive yeah. line this week. How they defend, how they hold their gaps, but also how they're able to push that front. Because... It's been a really difficult year for Washington, but they still have some guys there. They've made some investments. 
to make sure that they can actually get the protection they need for Haskins. Yeah. That is the number one chess piece that I'm really intrigued to watch once the game gets started on Sunday. Yeah, well, on the offensive side of the ball, the Packers would certainly like to get their running game going as well. Matt LaFleur talked about it. The Packers did not run the ball as well as they had hoped last week against the Giants. LaFleur said he actually put the offense in some bad situations as far as personnel packages and still trying to run. The Giants did have... A pretty tough front against the run. You give them credit there. I know a lot. There's there's a lot of talk outside the building, Wes, about getting Aaron Jones more involved and all this kind of stuff. As far as the running game specifically goes, I honestly don't care whether it's Aaron Jones or Jamal Williams, whichever guy is producing. But the Packers need to get that running game going because so much so much of the rhythm and so much of the production that we've seen from this offense in 2019 has come from the play action right. when the running game is working. So Those I don't are really big plays last week, even when the running game wasn't working. Right. They I mean, er, early the on they had some nice runs yeah. in the first half and then the play action passes came off of it. And then in the second half, it got to be a little bit more of a struggle there to run right. the football. So whatever it takes to run it, whichever back it is, and may, maybe because of the weather, Jamal Williams, more of the bruiser, the power guy in the cold weather, whatever it takes, the Packers have got to find a way to, uh, to, to run the football, you want to get that going here in December for the stretch run. So I have to add this Mike Spofford caveat to this because at the time we take this, we haven't gone to practice on Friday. Right. Jamal Williams was listed as a, as a limited participant in Thursday's practice. Now, was that Very them true. being mindful of his workload with the knee injury, or did something happen there? We don't know right now. So Very I just, true. I want to be careful with that in case this doesn't age well. But be that as it may, he was in the locker room yesterday. You would hope and presume everything's okay. But your original point stands as firm and true. It is Aaron Jones and Jamal Williams in tandem, how you use those two guys yeah. and how they're able to be effective. What I'm looking for in this game particularly is they're going up against the 27th-ranked run defense. That has been really up and down from them this year. Now, they do have Ryan Kerrigan back. They have some of those guys that are they're, they're stalwarts up front, so that certainly would change things. But it's just so it's so incredible how much different this offense looks when Aaron Jones is going off, yeah. when he is making the big plays. And the one thing we still haven't really seen yet in Week 14 is that 60-yard breakthrough run. I mean, he has that capability on every play, and at this point he's still as long as carries only 28 yards. That could happen this Sunday. It could happen next week against Chicago. Whenever Aaron Jones goes off, everything else follows suit. So yeah. I just think you don't want to – It's it's so easy just to say, well, why doesn't he just carry the ball 20 times? Well, you you can't just keep running against a wall and going three and out, and you know that's your offense and that's what you're hanging your hat on. You have to be more multiple and diverse than that. But at the same time, what they did well in the Giants game is what you want to see them try to continue to do, which is those six- and seven-yard carries that stretch and, and get you in those favorable second downs and yeah. favorable third downs. Because Aaron Jones and Jamal Williams are both talented enough that they're going to occasionally break a big run. But it's not being in second and eight and second and nine that really is what puts you in a hole offensively. Yeah, and certainly getting into those manageable third downs is where Matt LaFleur, it's where Aaron Rodgers, that's where they want to be. And I'll be writing about this in my one last look column for Saturday as far as, okay, the Packers have four regular season games here to to make their last strides of improvement in all three phases. I think we know on defense – it's about limiting the big plays. On special teams, it's about finding a return game. On offense, it's about getting more efficient on third down. Both Aaron Rodgers and Matt LaFleur brought that up when I asked this specific question. What is the 
what is the focus for improvement over the yeah. final four regular season games. It's third down. You look at this game, Wes, the Washington Redskins are 30th in the league in third down defense. Now, last week against Carolina, after they fell behind 14 to nothing, they stopped 10 consecutive third downs. There was a stretch there. It was actually 11 third downs where Carolina's only conversion was via a penalty. Right. Now, they got Carolina in a ton of third and longs. You look through the play-by-play in that game, it was third and 16. There was third and 23. There was third and 18. I mean, Carolina was in these ridiculous situations, and Washington's defense got on a roll. They kept stopping them on those third downs. But still, this is a defense that is 30th in the league on the season in third down conversion percentage and that's something the Packers have to take advantage of and start to crank that up start to turn that back the other way a little yeah bit. And, and I I do have a lot of respect for what has happened with Washington and how Callahan has pulled this thing back together because this very easily could have been a 2 and 14 1 and 15 type team oh no question with the about way it. the direction yeah. season went now that being said your record isn't always what you say you are the two wins that they have are over arguably the two most struggling inconsistent teams right now in the league in Detroit and Carolina they're in the conversation at least in team teams certainly, that are going backwards right yeah, now certainly in the NFC so in that regard you take it with a grain of salt but when that team steps on the field on Sunday they're not going to care about who they've beaten or what their record is they care about the fact that they've won two games in a row yeah they're going to have some wind in their sails and they want to suddenly pull themselves back into this NFC East race that it really looks like eight wins could win this thing. Maybe That's seven. A, maybe less. seven. <laughs> so that nothing, you can't, you can't say anything's out the door. You can't say anything's out the window. It goes back to exactly what I was saying in this very seat at almost the exact moment a week ago. Giants were struggling. The Giants had the record they had. The Green Bay Packers have nine wins for a reason. They need to go out in Lambeau Field on Sunday at home in front of their home crowd and prove it. Yeah, it's time to take care of business, certainly. Well, you mentioned the NFC East race. We saw a Thursday night game. We did. The Dallas Cowboys went into Soldier Field, and quite frankly, Wes, they stunk it up. And the Bears took advantage the Bears got Mitchell Trubisky running with the ball again, mm-hmm. both scrambling out of the pocket, read option runs, all kinds of things. Suddenly, the running Mitch Trubisky that I thought was a big part of the Bears going 12-4 and four last year, he's back. That, that's what they're doing. And it got them a big win over the Dallas Cowboys, 31-24, to 24, and the game was not that close, no. quite frankly. Not, not, uh, not even close to being that close. And... The Chicago Bears are 7-6. and six. They're still hanging in this thing in the NFC to try to make a push for the playoffs. The Dallas Cowboys still leading the NFC East at the moment, but at 6-7 and seven with uh, Philadelphia trying to right the ship. And quite frankly, the Washington Redskins looking now at an opportunity that, hey, we're three and nine, but if we run the table at seven and nine, it might actually be enough to win the division. Yeah. Washington is not completely out of this yet. So the one of the things I really hated about the narrative of this game, and I watched basically all of it, the first thing on Dallas's side, they're gonna put a lot of this on Maher, the kicker, Brett Maher. They're gonna put a lot of it on Jason Garrett. That is as bad as I've seen a team defend the read option in the last five years. Oh. I mean, yeah. it was there was no commitment to the ball carry at all. It was selling out for the running back. It was just making the wrong decisions at the wrong times. And they picked him apart. 
the Bears were able to do at will what they wanted to do. They had the explosive chunk plays, and they just had the momentum. I mean, defensively, they made the plays when they need to. They got the pressure when they needed to. Yeah, other than Trubisky throwing that interception yeah. at the goal line, like on the first possession, other than that, it was like Dallas couldn't stop them. They you couldn't. Know, all, all, day, all night long. So, and from the Bears' perspective, the one thing that has been kind of maddening for me and I think you can only really have this perspective if you're on the outside looking in. Because okay. I think people in Chicago are really quick to jump on Trubisky, whether it's media or fans. I, I've tried to be right down the middle with this guy from the very beginning. I didn't buy into the hype at the beginning of the year that this guy is going to be an MVP candidate and all that. But I also never really got to the point where it was like, no, you got to move on. you got to find a new quarterback, right. which is what the narrative kind of was. Right. Mitchell Trubisky is a really talented guy. And when you call the game to accentuate his strengths like Matt Nagy to his credit did on on Thursday night you see what he can do to a defense now Dallas is struggling on defense they are not the defense I thought they were when they played the Packers earlier this season but you have to play the team that's in front of you so whether it was you know Montgomery being able to you know get some yards and actually build some momentum out of the backfield or just what Trubisky was able to do with the ball in his hands and spreading it around yeah they made the plays they needed to make and when they got the turnovers and takeaways they executed on them yeah well elsewhere here in week 14 we won't spend too much time talking about the uh Lions traveling to Minnesota because quite frankly I'll be shocked if Detroit in the situation they're in and with Minnesota coming off of uh, yeah. a difficult loss but but certainly a, a a performance that was nothing to hang their head about in a tough road environment in Seattle I think Minnesota wins that the Packers are going to need to win to stay a game ahead of the Vikings but two big games in the NFC that we definitely need to talk about Wes a pair of 10 and 2 teams the San Francisco 49ers We'll be traveling to New Orleans to take on the Saints. And then in Sunday night football, the Seattle Seahawks coming off of that big home Monday night win over Minnesota, they will go to Los Angeles to play a Rams team that seems to have found a little bit of new life. The Rams are at 7-5, and five and they are trying to stay in this NFC playoff mix as well. Yeah, they're trying to stay in the orbit of this whole thing. And the, the thing that differs from where the Rams are and where the Bears are, the Bears have a really – they have a grind coming up here, including Green Bay. With yeah, they have sitting at the, the, bear, the Bears. The Bears get the extra rest now, the mini buy with the Thursday night game. But then they have Green Bay, Kansas City, and Minnesota yeah. to finish the season. And the Bears are looking at needing to run that table to get to ten and six, and then let the chips fall and see if they're in the mix. Yeah. Whereas you look at the Rams right now, they have Dallas coming up. They do have to face San Francisco at San Francisco, and then they actually close the season at home against Arizona. So they're still very much in the thick of this thing. If they can get on a run, you would imagine they're going to have to beat Seattle or and or San Francisco yeah. probably and uh, to really make a run at this thing but they're still in it as well a great matchup it'll be interesting to see exactly how Seattle responds uh, just an incredible uh, game that they were a part of to to be able to pull that out and, and everything that went into it um, you saw I thought the resiliency from Russell Wilson to bounce back from some early adversity and now he's going to be taking on a Rams defense that's looked pretty good as of late the the main event and we've been pointing towards this for months, has been San Francisco versus New Orleans. Yeah. Because these are the two teams, I think, since the very beginning of the season. Once they started to realize when San Francisco got on this undefeated run, they're legitimate, they're contenders, and they can win the way that they play. And New Orleans is just a different type of bird. I mean, they, the way that they come together and were able to get through Drew Brees' injury and get Brees back on the field, and he hasn't been perfect, but he's played well. 
and just keep the cylinders running the whole time. That's a huge testament to Sean Payton. Yep. And I'm really interested to see how this week plays out because every single game in some shape or form has implications for Green Bay. Who wins, how they win, and, and you know where everything falls after that. If you're a Packer fan, you're cheering for the Rams? Is that right? Or how do you see that? Yeah, I think as, as a Packer fan, I think you're you cheering. You hope that you win out and you're hoping that they yeah, take care of this. Yeah, I, I think because because the potential for a first-round bye is still there, yeah. I think you're cheering for the Rams to beat the Seahawks. And I th- and and I'll have this, by the way, in my Path to the Playoffs. Oh, yeah. It is returning to Packers.com. Path to the Playoffs will be posted later in the day on Friday. So check nice. that out over the weekend. But yeah, I think you want the Rams to beat the Seahawks and I think you want the 49ers to beat the Saints because when you look at it from the from the big picture if the Packers are going for a potential first round by one of those top 2 seeds, the Seahawks and the 49ers only one of them can get one of those spots because they're in the same division. Yeah. Whoever doesn't win that division is going to be a wild card. So the Saints who have already clinched the NFC South, they're a division champ. They are fighting for one of those top two seeds. That's really the team. If you just say, okay, between the 49ers and the Seahawks, whoever wins the West is going to get one of the buys. Then if you're the Packers, you're like, okay, well, if the Packers can overtake the Saints, then you would get the second one. So I think you want New Orleans to lose. But regardless, one of those teams, the Saints or the 49ers, barring an overtime tie, will be 10-3. and And if the Packers beat Washington... The Packers are 10-3, and three, and then you're looking at uh, a little bit different picture here the last three weeks. I'm glad you do path to the playoffs. I don't think my <laughs> IQ level or my ACT score is high enough to well, be able you to can, handle you that. Well, you can read it and get all caught up, and then we can talk about it Sunday morning. I can feel smart morning. about it, We right? can talk about it Sunday morning when we reconvene in the press box. <laughs> but uh, before we go here, Wes, there is one other thing. We'll go a little bit overtime There today. is, yeah. Because a couple of weeks ago, and it's a subject we just haven't gotten to yet with everything else going on, Leroy Butler, former Packers safety, for the third year in a row, has reached the semifinalist stage in his bid to gain induction into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. Now, the previous two years, he has not gotten from the semifinalist to the finalist stage. Semifinalist stage is the top 25 candidates for induction. Yep. Then when it goes to the finalist stage, I forget now, is it 10 or 15? 15. 15. So then it'll be whittled from 25 down to 15 before the Hall of Fame Selection Committee meets on Super Bowl weekend, and then they whittle it down from 15 to a maximum of five modern-day inductees from this group. Um, I know you have some thoughts here on Mr. Butler and – his candidacy. I know you and I are very much on the same page with this, but uh, I'll give you the floor for the moment. Well, the journalistic oath here, uh, I have to admit, like there is an internal bias with me. I've known Leroy Butler since 2013. I did a radio show with him for four years. So there is a personal investment here. I want to disclose that. So it isn't just that I'm just spouting off on all this. Sure. But that being said, when I was at the Green Bay Press-Gazette, I remember the conversation had started to get, you know, get fired up a little bit, especially as kind of the, the relation and, um, you know, so kind of the feel towards safety started to turn, started to get a little bit more respect is yeah. what I'm trying to say. And there was a time that I kind of, in my mind, was able to understand maybe why Leroy Butler had been overlooked. He got hurt. Um, his career was over after 2001. Maybe yeah. he just didn't play quite long enough. Yeah, the career did end sooner than expected. And then... About two years ago, I said, that's absolute garbage. (laughs) I don't know what I was thinking with that. Because then you start to see some of these guys 
10 years in the league is a long time. Now, was Leroy Butler a starting safety from day one? No, he was a cornerback. Took two years for him to go and play safety. Once right. he did, he became an all-pro. Right. I believe the only four-time all-pro safety that isn't in the Hall of Fame, if I remember that correctly. Yes, all any any and all safeties who have been first-team all-pro four or more times, every single one of them is in Canton except for Butler. And I tweeted this a couple days ago, and you can go back and write any number of stories I've written on Leroy over the last three I should, years. I should clarify who are eligible because eligible. Troy Polamalu is, yes. you know, um, he's – Another one of those guys on the list, but he just hasn't gotten far enough along yet. He'll be in there. Okay. So this is the thing I struggle with, with this whole thing with Leroy, is that, and I tweeted this a couple nights ago, if you watched the 1996 Packers, and I know you did, (laughs) and you tell me that that team had two, count them, one, two, Reggie White, Brett Favre, two pro football Hall of Famers on that team, and that's the reason they won the Super Bowl. That's the reason they turned around this whole narrative with the Green Bay Packers. and Went to back-to-back Super Back-to-back Bowls. Back-to-back Super Bowls. Everything relied on them. You are a fool. Leroy Butler, in the way that Fritz Shermer used him, I keep saying this over and over again, and it's getting kind of old, but he was hybrid before hybrid was cool. Yeah. He did not play strong safety like strong safeties played strong safeties at that time. He played something more. It's the reason he had as many sacks as he did. I am not asking the Pro Football Hall of Fame voters, to put him in the Hall of Fame this year. I'm not asking that because I have a lot of good friends on that panel that I respect mightily. I am asking you to get him in the final 15. Yeah. Because the fact that Leroy Butler in 2019 has not had Pete Doherty or Cliff Crystal standing up there presenting his case to that panel is embarrassing. It is embarrassing. All due respect to Steve Atwater, all due respect to John Lynch, I hope they both get in the Hall of Fame at some point. The fact that Leroy Butler has not been up there and is considered a tier below those two guys is unjust. Yeah, I I agree with you, and we were discussing this before we turned the cameras on. I have nothing against John Lynch or Steve Atwater, but when a couple weeks ago when Butler was announced as a semifinalist for the third year in a row, I answered a question in Insider Inbox with regards to, okay, what are his chances We've seen John Lynch and Steve Atwater both make the finalist stage over the last couple of years. Butler has gotten knocked out at the semifinalist stage. I look at I look at Atwater specifically if you're going to make a side-by-side comparison. And the thing that I think is really unfortunate, because Butler's a four-time first-team All-Pro, Atwater's got a couple of All-Pro nods, has a bunch more Pro Bowls. He has like eight than, or nine Pro Bowls. Yeah, he has, I think, eight Pro Bowls. Butler doesn't have that many Pro Bowls. You look at the statistics, interceptions and sacks, Butler's got him beat. Um, So from a statistical standpoint, there's a really strong case for Butler. And I have nothing against Atwater, but what I think is unfortunate here is it feels like the reason Atwater, who played a long time for the Denver Broncos, has been a finalist and Leroy Butler has not, is because of the result of Super Bowl thirty-two. Because of that result, Steve Atwater is a two-time Super Bowl champion, and Leroy Butler has one Super Bowl ring. And I personally think that if that Super Bowl 32 result had been reversed, that where we'd be right now is Butler would be the finalist and Atwater would be the guy yeah. on the outside looking in. And I don't think that's right. That That's the part to yeah. me that is unjust because... As I said, nothing against Lynch or Atwater, and Lynch I think is a little bit different case. But looking at looking at Atwater and Butler, why 
why does the number of Super Bowl rings matter? It was one game. Yeah. It was one game in San Diego in January of 1998 that it feels like it's that's what's blocking Leroy Butler from getting further in this process, and I think that's wrong. And I have to present this, too. At least on the record, there is one coach from that game that talked about needing to take away the other team's safety. Yeah. That coach was not Mike Holmgren. That was Mike Shanahan. <laughs> yeah, that coach was Mike talking Shanahan. Talking about trying to take away Leroy Butler. He is the guy that we need to have a hat on. He's the guy we need to be able to eliminate. The reason there's a lot of... All I'm asking for is that <laughs> if you look at the Pro Football Hall of Fame process, and it is not an easy process, I continually no, will admit no, that. No, it is not. It, it's, but it's the not way simple. this thing has gone in recent years is they create. The, it seems like they've created this line. Okay, Atwater's a two-time finalist. He moves up a little bit, unless you're a unanimous first ballot Hall of Famer. Right. You know, Lynch has been in the conversation. You move him up a little bit. I just don't want to be in a position where Atwater and Lynch get in as modern day nominees, and they push Leroy Butler off so that when he's sixty years old or whatever, he can go in. Yeah, then he has. A then he has finals. to go. The, then he has to go. Leroy the Butler route. is at peace with the fact he's going to be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He is the calmest cookie in the room as it. Relates yeah, he to this a, he absolutely believes it's going to happen, and he doesn't he doesn't sweat it. Which I give him credit for that because because uh, yeah, you you and I are the ones who are sweating it right now. But for little old Green Bay, Wisconsin, if you've lived here, if you've been a part of this thing you understand what it was like for 29 years to be in just complete irrelevancy but Roy Butler was a big part of this resurgence people Brett Favre was fun he was the trendsetter he, he did everything as the face of this franchise to make the Packers cool again Reggie White believed he came in and changed the culture of that defense Roy Butler is on that Mount Rushmore, though, yeah. at least as it relates to the Packers and the success they had in the 1990s. Yeah, I certainly agree with you. And we have run over time, but we're going to call much it so. a wrap on this edition and this week of Packers Unscripted. Be sure to follow all of our coverage of the team and of Sunday's game from Lambeau Field against Washington on Packers.com. Subscribe to us, like us on iTunes and other podcast services, and check out the Packers YouTube channel for all of your great video content. For Wes, I'm Mike. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.